According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again, and I think for our final time in Proverbs chapter 13, although I said that last week, didn't I? Um, we, no, we, we'll wrap this up today. We're only going to do verse 25 and deal with issues of satisfaction and dissatisfaction and uh, concepts that are there. And so uh, we get through that, then uh, we'll be ready for chapter 14 next week, Lord willing and rapture pending. Also, uh, keeping your prayers, uh, we're looking ahead to November, December, and uh, trying to figure out what the, the schedule's going to look like and any uh, holidays or vacation or, or conferences, if I'm going to go to pre-trib in December, things like that. So um, I'm working on getting pulpit coverage for different Sundays and Wednesdays, and then uh, deciding what, uh, what impact that's going to have on, on Wednesday morning. So anyway, keep that in your prayers as well. The righteous has enough to satisfy his appetite, but the stomach of the wicked is in need. All right. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking the Father to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together this morning. Father, we call upon your faithfulness to hedge us about and protect us, to uh, hinder anyone that would want to come in here and stop what we're doing or bring us to harm in any way. Father, we uh, also ask that as a part of our protection that you would humble us to receive the word implanted that's able to save our souls. So Father, if we're approaching the study of your word with any pride or any arrogance, Father, anything that's going to impact our understanding of your truth, then, uh, then clear that away as well, Father, and humble us to, uh, to receive your word as you said it. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so the outline then, and this is main point 16, which uh, wraps up the, uh, the final aspects here in verses 22 through 25. Chapter 13 closes with a quartet of verses centered on families and inheritance. And so this quartet of verses then I've outlined under points A, B, C, and D, kind of in a, in a simple fashion there. Uh, under point A, we looked at verse 22 to talk about uh, the difference in financial priorities, whether you have divine viewpoint or not, makes all the difference in the world. And uh, people that operate under human viewpoint, uh, they're going to have you know, just some strange thinking. And sometimes you wonder, what planet are you from? Because that's not, that's not normal, it's not biblical, what is that? And, and applying not just to finances, but to everything. We're talking uh, relationships and marriage and all kinds of stuff. But uh, verse 22 is a financial verse, uh, with a good man who leaves an inheritance to his children and the wealth of the sinner stored up for the righteous. Then under point B, the be, uh, we talked about the best circumstances for the working poor found in a land of freedom and justice. And uh, we looked at verse 23 for this, as it says, abundant food is in the fallow ground of the poor. 
And you know, God designed creation to be productive, and God designed the ground to be food productive. And it's, uh, it's just there, waiting to grow and waiting, waiting to harvest. And and you, but you've got to work it. See, the fallow ground is fallow, and so uh, what do you got to do to the fallow ground? Well, you got to plow it. You got to break it up. You got to plant. You got to sow. You got to you got to wait for the harvest. You got to reap the harvest. And all this is by design. And, uh, and it's, it's designed for our good, that we learn the value of work and we learn the value of waiting patiently for the crops and, uh, and the aspects there. But it is swept away by injustice. And so the tragedy of it when someone is working uh, as designed and, and producing and they should be given the fruit of their labors, they should be given the work of their hands. It's good, that's what God designed. You worked, you produced, you should reap. And yet uh, it's swept away by injustice. And that's what happens when we have uh, sinners in human government. You end up with tyranny and you end up with uh, aspects there that will, uh, that will victimize people all over again. So that was point B. And then point C, we got into verse 24, which is our parental love passage here about spare the rod and spoil the child. He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. And so we spent uh, the bulk of last week actually going through these passages. Not only uh, this passage in chapter 13, but chapter 19, 22, 23, 29, a whole string of Proverbs that addresses parental love and the benefits, the blessings of parental discipline through that love. The New Testament equivalent being found in Hebrews 12, verses 7 through 9, which gets us now to Uh, verse 25. And again, we have a contrast between divine viewpoint and human viewpoint, similar to what we had in in point A, diametrically opposed once again, just like we had in point A. Divine viewpoint and human viewpoint are diametrically opposed in their appetite satisfaction awareness. Their appetite satisfaction awareness. And this is uh, hopefully a, a fairly simple concept. I I think I ripped it off from Jenny Craig or one of the the last weight loss things I went through, uh, to have an appetite satisfaction and to be aware of the appetite satisfaction that you have. And as you're uh, eating a meal and you pause halfway through to just assess and, and be appreciative for the the nourishment and the the flavor and the and then you recognize that all right now I'm going to finish this and this is uh, all the discipline of portion control whereby you say I'm going to be satisfied with the remainder of this and I'm not going to go back for seconds or thirds or or uh, three de- desserts and things like that. Um, in any event, uh, so I, yeah, I kind of borrowed the appetite satisfaction awareness terminology, but it's useful because I think that you and I as believers, we have a variety of appetites, an appetite for the Word of God, an appetite for righteousness, an appetite for um, serving one another in the body of Christ. We have other appetites. An appetite is just simply a a taste that that hungers for something. So there's sexual appetites and there's uh, financial appetites and any number of other appetites. The, the principle, though, beyond the stomach, uh, and, and the stomach is sometimes a euphemism for anything below the waist, um, you have an appetite for, uh, for things, and you learn what God has supplied, what is good. It's not all junk food. It's, uh, it's not uh, Snickers and Dr. Pepper uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's, uh, it's you know, there, 
the appetite is, is going to be provided for not only in flavor, but also nutrition and also um, quantity and uh, so forth. And we learn to love what God supplies. And when God chooses to withhold, we learn to love that also. And because He gives, He takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And uh, if He gives it, it's good. And if He withholds it, that means it's, it's, it would not be good for Him to give it. Because not one good thing does He withhold from those who walk uprightly. And these are the principles of, of satisfaction awareness that we want, to, we want to develop. And so looking at it here, uh, the poetry is fairly straightforward with the A part and the B part of verse 25. You'll notice there's, uh, there's the parallel between righteous and wicked, right? There's a contrast. Righteous on the one hand, wicked on the other hand. And then there's uh, has enough or sufficient on the one hand versus not enough or in need on the other hand. And so the parallelism is there by way of contrast. Uh, there's to satisfy. And uh, there's no, there's no uh, direct corollary to satisfy unless you combine it with enough to satisfy. But the, the need, that's the, that's the contrast there, um, you know, you could, you could pencil in the concept of a dissatisfaction, that not only is there a need, but because of that need comes the dissatisfaction, which is the poetic contrast to satisfaction in, in the first part. And then uh, the, the final parallels are appetite and stomach. All right, Clearly they're not exact synonyms, but they are clear enough uh, that uh, we see it in the poetry. So there, there you have it. On the one hand, the righteous has enough. And how much is enough? What is, uh, what, what is sufficient? What is enough? What is, um, for the righteous now, we're able to define enough as what God supplies. <laughs> if God supplies it, well then, His grace is sufficient. So I will thank Him for it. And I'm not going to be critical of what God supplies or tell God that it's not enough when God's the one that's given it. And so uh, any, any lamenting on my part or any uh, rejection of the will of God uh, to put myself in His shoes and tell Him His business, <laughs> like He doesn't know what He's doing, uh, like, excuse me, God, um, you've, you've given me this, but that's not nearly enough, as if He's ignorant of that, right? Uh, God doesn't uh, you know, respond to our complaints that way and say, oh, I'm sorry, my bad, I, I, I meant to give you more. You know? But uh, no, what He's given is what He's given. And it's not a mistake. And it's not an oversight. And he's not, um, he's not failing to uh, supply. Now he might be withholding for a season and he might directly be uh, delaying delivery on something so that we can identify what that need is and we can go to him in, in grace and we can go to him in love. Uh, Adam realized there was no counterpart for him. <laughs> he looked around at all the animals and said, wait a minute here. Um, I don't, my, my helpmate is, is not yet on the scene, <laughs> you know, and, and, and he's named all the animals and he's seen all these things. He's seen the, the design in the male female operation and he's looking around and he says, you know, none of those is corresponding to me. And, uh, that's when the, the, the woman was provided. So, um, I think some of these things are also useful for us to consider as well. So let's take the first half. And, and recognize that divine viewpoint generates a personal satisfaction with the sufficiency of God's grace. Divine viewpoint generates a personal satisfaction with the sufficiency 
of God's grace. And it comes down to our perspective, what it is that we see and what we think about it. Whether we personally embrace that as God has intended. God has intended it to be sufficient. We accept it as sufficient. But we must personally do so, and I think on a volitional basis. That's what divine viewpoint uh, blesses us with. A personal satisfaction with the sufficiency of God's grace. If we don't have that, if we're, if we're just back to human viewpoint again, then we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable to all kinds of things. Not only just on quantity of whether it's enough or not enough or too much, but also in terms of comparison. Saying, well, wait a minute. You know, you gave me this, but you gave him that. And I'm better than him, so why didn't I get that? He should have this, I should have that. And then we start comparing this and that. And we start comparing me with him. And we start comparing on a, on a relative basis, and, and we're all out of sorts. Because we don't have the satisfaction, because if we don't have the divine viewpoint that recognizes that it's God's grace in all that He does. God's grace in what He gives me, and God's grace in what He gives the next guy, and God's grace in what He doesn't give me. And uh, these things will hopefully be, be very clear for us, all right? And so to go along with Proverbs 13, 25, you know, um, if, if we take that, remember, this is a principle. This is not a promise. This is a principle. So if I happen to have an exception to the rule, if I happen to have a, a, a day or a season or an occasion where maybe I'm in need, Right? I'm, I'm hungering. I'm in need. I don't have enough. I don't have enough to satisfy. And I'm going through a test on that basis. Then I don't blame God for failing in His promise, but I do remind God of what He's what He said in His Word as a principle. And then I welcome God to then see me through the season, <laughs> and and then to provide the uh, sufficiency in His good timing. Does that make sense? All right. So. Uh, again, and we it 's been a while since i 've highlighted this, but it's it 's useful to highlight the difference between absolute promises that never have exceptions and principles uh, of particularly of wisdom literature, whereby there are exceptions because uh, wisdom literature is designed to demonstrate the normal all right Prov- uh, psalm thirty four ten psalm thirty four ten Psalm 34 is a psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech. One of my favorite Old Testament stories ever. And David just starts babbling with gibberish and drooling in his beard and acting all like a fool. And Abimelech says, do I lack madmen that you brought this one to act the madman in my presence? And um, it's just a, it's been a favorite memory verse of mine for years and years. And uh, anyway, on that occasion when David's life was spared and he escaped, in the consequences of that escape he then composed Psalm 34. And, and it's interesting to me because it's not only is it David's personal deliverance and his personal celebration, but it also becomes his teaching opportunity to instruct others. And uh, as it says here, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. And that's the humble plural. Uh, so all y'all, the, 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 the humble plural uh, believers that are under biblical teaching, that are humbled by the Word of God, and in, in David's composition here of Scripture, it's going to be a, a blessing to multiple believers. He says, oh magnify the Lord with me, 
Let us exalt His name together. You know, hallelujahs are always more fun when they're in chorus. We get to shout the hallelujah chorus. We all get to sing together with a praise the Lord and thank you and, and multiply the, uh, the, the uh, exaltation. He says, I sought the Lord and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Why was he afraid? <laughs> was he a sissy? Was David just a doctrinal coward? And yet, you know, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is walking by faith and trusting God through the fear, despite the fear. It, it's curious to see how, how he does this. And so, yeah, David had fears. Abimelech wanted, you know, there were other Philistines that were going to put David to death, and uh, Abimelech could have very easily made them happy by killing David. And instead, the answer came and uh, David was rescued. Notice too, um, so I sought the Lord, He answered me, delivered me from all my fears. They looked to Him and were radiant. And their faces will never be ashamed. And, and so when you ask yourself, well, who's the they and who's there and their faces, who's He talking about? He's talking about the humble. He's talking about the ones that He's inviting to magnify God with Him. This group that's going to learn by watching David's example. And because David went to the Lord in prayer and got the answer to the prayer, now they're encouraged to go to the Lord in prayer. And, and so they look to Him, that would be the Lord, and be radiant. Their faces will never be put to shame. And so the best way to learn the doctrine of prayer is to get into a prayer meeting and start praying with other brothers and sisters and start seeing how the answers come and join in the hallelujah choruses and uh, be excited about the various answers when, uh, when they happen. Back to David again, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. And, and to me, this is such a beautiful pattern because a lot of doctrinal believers especially are so wrapped around the axle. they got this hyper allegiance to the doctrine of privacy. And don't get me wrong, it's a legitimate doctrine. However, I think it, it's carried to an extent beyond the legitimate biblical scope. And so the doctrine of privacy becomes the doctrine of secrecy, becomes classified top secret and back off, it's not your business between me and the Lord. And so you get these brothers and sisters and they're praying on their own and not allowing others to partake with them. And, and when that happens then, the poor man can cry and the Lord will hear him and save him out of all his troubles, but it doesn't allow others, like in verse 5, to look to him and be radiant. It doesn't allow the, the multiplication of the thanksgiving and the magnification and the exaltation and it really diminishes the glory of Jesus Christ because you did not welcome others to join in the, in the worship and in the endeavor. So the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him, and that's again plural, those plural, who, and rescues them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. And so the, the taste then is the opportunity to say, hey, now you try it. All right, taste and see. What are your requests? How can I come alongside you? Taste and see. And now each person that's joined in David's celebration, now they have an opportunity to taste. They have an opportunity to offer up their struggles, their fears, their prayer requests. And David's going to come alongside them and all of them are going to pray together. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For to those who fear Him there is no want. 
in the fear of the Lord, if you properly have that orientation to the fear of the Lord, then you have this personal satisfaction with the sufficiency of God's grace. There's no want. There might still be a lack, but there's no want. You understand the difference? That even if there are items that are not yet provided, it's not become a want in, in, your, in your dissatisfaction, in your soul's dissatisfaction. And that's why uh, it then gets illustrated with lions. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Do you believe that? That's a promise, okay? So we've got a principle from Proverbs, but here we've got a promise in, uh, in the Psalms. And so uh, look at all my lack and look at all my need and, and recognize, wait a minute, uh, no good thing does the Lord withhold. Uh, say, wait a minute, if, if He hasn't provided it yet, well then it's either too soon or I never need it. It might be that, uh, that not only is it too soon, but it's way too soon. That it's uh, like eternally too soon. I'm not going to get it on this earth. And, uh, and, and so it's not a good thing. Shall not be in want of any good thing. If there's something that I'm wanting so badly and He's not giving it, I'd have to stop and ask myself, well maybe it's not a good thing. Maybe the fact that I want it so badly is making it not a good thing. That uh, I need to get oriented to, to other things first before I have the capacity to, uh, to do this. Come you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? It all becomes a teaching opportunity. We get to learn more than just what we're learning in the, in the, in the Bible class. Prayer meeting is a teaching opportunity. We're learning in the, in the process there. Fellowship, potlucks, these are teaching opportunities. We get to learn from one another as we relate the, uh, the things that we've learned, as we relate our answers to prayer. That's how we speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. All right, so that's Psalm 34. How about Psalm 78? In verse 25... This is a long psalm. It's got uh, 72 verses to it. It is a masculine, usually thought of as a plaintive or a didactive, kind of a contemplative teaching psalm. A masculine of Asaph, Psalm 78. Um, and don't want to read all of this, but we get down to, uh, well, It's a, it's a uh, walk through the Bible reminder of things. The, the key verse is in verse 25. Man, uh, man did eat the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. And what we don't necessarily understand is that the word abundance here is the word sufficient. It's the word for enough. And, and we don't like that. Modern English, um, 21st century American culture, uh, in, our, in our universe, in our way of thinking, uh, the, the adjective sufficient and the adjective abundant are two entirely different things, <laughs> right? Uh, because we're fat, dumb, and happy American wealthy people. And it just, I mean, just culturally and, and in the history of the world, has there ever been a nation so blessed and so abundant and so wealthy? And there never has, all right? And, and, and yet, so we have a distinction between the adjective sufficient and the adjective abundant. And we would never conflate them. 
we would never conflate them. Because we would think about abundant as being just way too much, extra. Uh, you know, sufficient is, eh, okay. Eh, like the bare minimum. Like, well, I guess, all right, yeah. I, I, I could eat three more cookies, but I guess that's sufficient. Okay, I'll stop there. You know, uh, am, am I making sense? But Hebrew, here's the thing. This Hebrew term, I'm showing, what I'm, the verses I'm showing you this morning are using the same vocabulary all throughout. Between sufficient, enough to satisfy his needs, abundant. If you are grace-oriented, if you have a personal satisfaction with the sufficiency of God's grace, well then of course it's abundant. And then what does the Bible say? My grace is sufficient or my grace is abundant? It actually says both. <laughs> it says both. And depending on what verse you're reading and how it's translated. I've come that they may have life, that they may have it abundantly. Okay? Or how about my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness, right? Um, so depending on the verse you're quoting, and depending upon the Greek or the Hebrew word you're translating, it, it might be rendered, uh, and in the English Bible you're, you're reading, it might be rendered sufficient, it might be rendered abundant, but it's His grace that's both sufficient and abundant. And biblically speaking, what's the difference? Okay? So, it's kind of kind of fun to think about that. Anyway, the rest of this psalm, uh, by the way, is a, is, is a walkthrough. It's a walk through the Bible of, of Israel. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. So things heard and known. And uh, we will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wondrous works that He has done. And so you end up with a walkthrough in the poetry of this psalm. You end up with a walkthrough of Israel's history and, uh, and all of this. Um, again, verse 5, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. See, that's why we want to, that's, we got to be generationally focused. That's why that impact, remember the, the inheritance verse a couple of verses ago in Proverbs 13? A, a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. We're forward thinking in the upcoming generations. Anyway, and so as you go through here, you're going to find that there were particular generations that were not faithful. You know, they turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to walk in His law. They forgot His deeds even though he had wrought wonders and and so forth. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. That You think that'd be enough. I, I would think that'd be enough. And it's probably just pride on my part to think I would do better than them. But if I'm walking through dry ground and I've got Red Sea on the left and the right, you know, how high were those walls of water if I'm walking through the, the, the bed of the, of the sea? And then I get to the other side and the water comes crashing down and kills the Egyptian army and you know, and then I'm going to start grumbling about what God can't do or doesn't do or whatever. To me, it's just so human, <laughs> evil. All right. Anyway, we can go through the rest of this. Uh, the discipline, his faithfulness, his love, how he split the rocks in the wilderness, gave them abundant drinks. And again, that's sufficient or abundant. 
yet they continue to sin against him in verse 17, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. And uh, they put him to the test. And even Moses blew it. He struck the rock. Um, the second time when he struck the rock, when he was told to speak to the rock. Um, anyway, there, uh, verse 21, Therefore the Lord heard and was full of wrath, and a fire was kindled against Jacob. Anger also mounted against Israel, because they did not believe in God and did not trust in His salvation. And this is what we have to deal with. We're talking about the unbelief of the believer. We're talking about the experiential salvation of the saved ones. Every last one of these people were saved out of bondage. They were no longer in Egypt. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. They needed the experiential salvation in the wilderness. Uh, We would say today, I've been been saved positionally, but now day by day I need that experiential salvation from sin, from temptation, from all these things. Yet he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down manna upon them and gave them food from heaven. Man did eat the bread of angels, yet he sent them food in abundance. And you know, it was sufficient. They would go out, they would gather enough for their household. And if they gathered, and on Friday they had to gather two days worth, but on any other day if they gathered too much, or even on Friday if they gathered more than two days, if they gathered more than they should have, then it rotted, right? It turned to worms and there was a curse in, in doing that. Because the abundance is the sufficiency, and the sufficiency is today, this day. And they learned how to walk, give us this day our daily bread. They learned how to walk by faith day by day by day, experiencing the experiential salvation that we talk about. All right. Anyway, that's Psalm 78, 25. How about Hebrews 13, 5, a New Testament corollary to this? Hebrews 13, 5. Hebrews 13, kind of the uh, closing application chapter. After we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and after we have the powerful theology of chapter 12 and the warning at the end of chapter 12 that our God is a consuming fire, then the, uh, the practical expressions then, let the love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. And you wonder who, who God sends when He sends different people to different places, visitors in a church or whatever, you know, different people. Uh, is this really a human being or is this an angel? Is God testing my grace? Is He testing my hospitality? And uh, so forth. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and uh, those who are ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. When your brothers and sisters are being ill-treated, what's your attitude? Like, whew, glad that's not me. (laughs) Or, man, that is me. Because they're me and I'm them and we're all the body of Christ and all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. So this test that my brother's going through, the, the affliction my sister's going through, I'm going through it too. Maybe not literally, but spiritually I can join right there in prayer. I can provide for their needs. I can love them. That's to remember them as God remembers them. Marriage is to be held in honor. Marriage, honored among all, and the marriage bed, undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. 
See, and there it is. This is maybe the easiest passage to turn to and point to if, you, if, you, if somebody you're dealing with needs a very simple uh, explanation for, uh, for uh, sex and why sex is designed for marriage because it's called the marriage bed. Hello. <laughs> All right. And so uh, there you have it. The, the actual um, uh, design, God's design for uh, human copulation, the sex act is called the marriage bed. And uh, there it is. And anything that defiles that, fornication and adultery, God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. And that's the attitude. The, uh, what's on the screen as personal satisfaction with the sufficiency of God's grace is all summarized in the word content. Being content with what you have not grumbling about what you don't have, not uh, being dissatisfied with what you think you should have, but being content with what you have because God is the one that's given it to you. Thank you, Lord. Being content with what you have. For He Himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I forsake you. So we may confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? And so we claim these as promises and principles and we apply them in the church age. And it all contributes towards our doctrinal uh, summation here known as contentment. Okay? Contentment. That's what we have on the positive side. On the negative side, well, (laughs) some people you just can't never satisfy, no matter what. And they might be filthy rich. They might have more money than you'd have in five lifetimes, but no satisfaction. And you've got all the satisfaction they'll never have in five of their lifetimes. And uh, it all comes down to either the sufficiency of God's grace. We either accept it or we don't. Human viewpoint rejects the sufficiency of God's grace and can therefore never be satisfied. And I love that. I think, I think satisfaction itself is a grace provision. The capacity God has programmed into our soul why are we programmed this way? Why, um, you know, is the human soul designed to be responsive to God's initiation? I believe it is. <clears throat> and I believe that the human soul is designed and the human spirit is designed to resonate with, with God the Holy Spirit by design. And so satisfaction comes to that. God Himself, and what, what leads me to conclude this <clears throat> is that God Himself stops to check his satisfaction awareness. That periodically he'll look around and go, man, I'm good. <laughs> you know? He creates in six days and then he rests on the seventh day so that he can reflect upon his satisfaction awareness and be satisfied in who he is and what he's done in all that he's done. The doctrine of propitiation tells you at the cross, what happened? The Father was satisfied. And even before the cross in Gethsemane, the Father was satisfied that the Son was prepared to go to the cross. And so in all these stages, I think the great white throne, when Jesus Christ throws every unbeliever into the lake of fire, it will be to the Father's satisfaction that every knee will bend and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And so (coughs) you and I need to reflect divine viewpoint with respect to our satisfaction when we look at things, do we have a grace perspective? Uh, or are we still stuck in works? 
what we've earned and deserved. And, you know, what I think is my relative goodness and their relative badness, and I sure deserve more than them, uh, then I, I've abandoned grace at that point. I'm, I'm no longer in divine viewpoint. I'm just, I might, might as well be an unbeliever, really, if that's my perspective. Is there any functional difference between how I conduct my life in carnality and how that unbeliever con- conducts their life in spiritual death? Functionally, we're doing the same thing, are we not? Okay? Functionally, you understand? All right. So uh, the second half of Proverbs 13 addresses that, verse 25b, um, never satisfied. The stomach of the wicked is in need, even when he's done, even when he finishes his, the biggest meal imaginable, and he's gorged himself like the biggest glutton you ever met. And he's thinking, where's the next course? <laughs> is that all there is? I, you know, got any more dessert? <laughs> Whatever else, you know? I worked with an officer. It was kind of like, he was a clown, but he was kind of fun. And, and he liked to eat. He was the brother that I talk about a lot uh, when I illustrate with different things. He um, had a fear of, of losing salvation and, and different things. Um, Pentecostal, a neat guy though. And he, uh, but he had, part of his shtick was uh, what, anytime he would finish eating, whether it was a tray or two trays or three inmate trays or whatever, he could eat. And no matter what he'd finished eating, he'd, he'd kind of smack his lips and go, well, that was a good snack. <laughs> and you're thinking, snack? Man, you wolf down three trays. All right. And that's kind of a nice illustration for this. The stomach of the wicked is in need. Always, always, always. It never, it never ends. Um, additional Proverbs, I think, that address this, including Proverbs 27 and Proverbs 30. In Proverbs 27, it's, it's verse 20. Um, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied. And that's why I say I think satisfaction is a reflection of divine viewpoint. Likewise, dissatisfaction is a reflection of satanic viewpoint, of of, uh, cosmic viewpoint. uh, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, nor are the eyes of man ever satisfied. That's humanly speaking in human viewpoint. Um, Anyway, there's a larger context that surrounds that. Uh, not really that large though. Iron sharpens iron in verse 17. So one man sharpens another. Um, verse 19 is the water face reflects face. So the heart of man reflects man. You know, do you ever look in the mirror and see somebody besides you? <laughs> Hope not. All right. <laughs> How freaky would that be? Um, yeah. So the heart of man reflects man. The true you is in your heart, not the phony show you keep showing other people. God looks upon the heart. And uh, that's, that's what it is. And, and then that's kind of a nice tie-in then to the idea of satisfaction or dissatisfaction. As Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, nor are the eyes of man ever satisfied. Proverbs 30, verses 15 and 16. This one's not Solomon's. This is uh, chapter 30's Augur whoever he was, the son of Jacob, whoever he was. <laughs> the oracle. Okay, we know what that is. Uh, the man declares to Ithiel, to Ithiel, and to Ukul, whoever they are. We'll have fun when we get to this. I, I like Proverbs 30. It's a good one. Uh, we get down to verse 15. The leech has two daughters. 
Give and give. <laughs> All right? There are th- I have two daughters, but I'm not going to comment. The, uh, there are three things that will not be satisfied. Four that will not say enough. Okay? And not to pick on daughters or whatever, sons can also leech. Um, sons will ask for keys to the car and they'll ask for this and that too. But anyway, give, give. There are, um, three things that, are, that will not be satisfied. Four that will not say enough. Sheol and the barren womb, earth that is never satisfied with water, and fire that never says enough. So um, anyway, concepts there. It's interesting though, the soul that never says enough, uh, the soul that always wants more is like, you know, trying to placate that, trying to satisfy that would be like asking asking a fire to put itself out. You know, standing in the middle of a forest fire and say, well, maybe the fire will just get tired of burning by the time it reaches me. Okay? No. It is not going to get tired of burning. It's not going to change its mind. It will continue to burn so long as it has fuel to burn. So if you're in the woods and the fire is coming your way, it's not going to stop. It's never satisfied. It will consume until it's consumed all its fuel. Anyway, um, and, and this is, you know, that, and earth never satisfied with water. And, and uh, anyway, Sheol, the barren womb, there's... Um, dissatisfaction going into all those illustrations. All right. Exodus 16.3. Why is the barren womb never satisfied? Exodus 16.3. I'm going to run out of time if I get sidetracked on a... uh, Latin's called it an excursus, which is a technical term. It's very it's Latin and it's very, um, it's very educational, it's very uh, scholarly to talk about an excursus, which is much more uh, edifying than a rabbit trail. That <laughs> Some pastors get off on rabbit trails, but PhD scholars will pause for an excursus and uh, develop some kind of a thing about female psychology and the barren womb and, and what, what is the biological clock and what is the, what is the desire of women all a part of the original created design and then impacted by the curse upon Eve and then impacted by personal sin experiences and other things. But it is a real thing, even if uh, some people pretend it's not. All right. But I'm I'm going to avoid that excursus and turn to Exodus 16.3. And you know what's interesting is, is dissatisfaction can turn into delusional insanity. Um, The sons of Israel said to them, this is right after the Exodus, um, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. You know, why did you bring us out here? This is terrible. We hate it here. Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. It would have been better off if we never crossed through the Red Sea. Because back there we sat by the pots of meat. Do you remember the good old days? Remember when we sat by the pots of meat? You remember those, right? Okay. What pots of meat? They were slaves. All right. They were slaves in the land of Egypt. If there were any pots of meat around, it wasn't for them. It was for the Egyptians they were working for. Maybe they were cooks in the kitchen serving the Egyptian slave masters or whatever, but those pots of meat weren't their pots of meat. 
if, if they even existed at all. And when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought, and to the full is, is our term here for satisfaction. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill us. You, you want to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Now how stupid is that? If God wanted them dead, there were a lot easier ways. He could have dumped the Red Sea on top of them while they were walking through the Red Sea, right? The idea that he's going to throw all those plagues on Egypt, he's going to redeem them, he's going to teach them all the doctrine with Passover and firstborn, he's going to do all this stuff, he's going to open the Red Sea, he's going to bring them through the Red Sea, he's going to crash it down on on Pharaoh's army, but not them, he's going to save them and bring them into the wilderness because it's all a part of his nefarious plot to starve them to death. Wow. You know, it just just, makes no sense at all. A God as awesome and powerful as that wouldn't be so stupid. And I mean, how bored would he have to be? How insane. And so this is kind of what introduces this. And so even though they're grumbling and even though they're complaining and even though they are expressing a dissatisfaction, he's, he's teaching them what the perfect provision is going to be. And he's so faithful to spell this out. He says, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you. And the people will go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. So you are now a redeemed person. So don't regret over what you left behind. Here you are now as a redeemed person. Now is the daily testing to walk by faith to apply doctrine, to accept His grace, to learn divine viewpoint and principles of satisfaction. And then uh, on the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. And uh, so there it is. And uh, this is what happens. So at evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. In the morning you will see the glory of the Lord. It's evening and morning, just like creation, evening and morning, day one. It's evening and morning. For he hears your grumblings against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us? And uh, so, verse 9, come near, the Lord has heard your grumblings. Verse 12, uh, I've heard the grumblings of the sons of Israel. Speak to them, saying, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. See, it wasn't just manna in the morning. So it came about at evening that quails came up and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And then when the layer of dew evaporated, behold, on the surface of the wilderness there was a fine flake-like thing. I, I, I view it as a, as a uh, hostess, or no, as a, a, a Pop-Tart. You know, it's just a, a hostess Pop-Tart or some kind of a frosted brown sugar cinnamon kind of fine flake-like thing. All right, maybe not. Fine as the frost on the ground. And the sons of Israel saw it and said, what is it? The Hebrew for what is it is manna. So we'll just call it, what is it? All right, so every morning they have to go out and gather up the what is it. Numbers 11. So they learned this lesson, right? They taught it to their children. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to learn the lesson, teach it to our children so they can teach it to their children so that a a people yet to be born will also hear of it. 
Well, no. <laughs> they didn't do so well teaching it to the next generation. And uh, they're also going to complain. Numbers 11. And you know, it's, it's interesting. And um, People became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. His anger was kindled. The fire of the Lord burned among them, consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. And uh, so the people therefore cried out to Moses. Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died out. So the name of the place was called Taborah because the fire of the Lord burned among them. And then the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. Okay, the rabble. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt. Oh yeah, yeah, free food, right? You were slaves. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. Probably table scraps, whatever they were able to swipe and steal from the, from the master's table as they fixed his meal. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. All we have, the only thing we have to eat is God's perfect provision. You know? It's like the man that commits adultery. The only provision I have is God's perfect provision. But you know, I want this other thing instead. Okay. And uh, more description. Manna was like coriander seed, not Pop-Tarts. Okay. Its appearance was like that of bdellium. Well, who knows what bdellium looked like? And people would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it into mortar, boil it in the pot, make cakes with it. Its taste was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. And when the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. Anyway, so more grumbling and more um, rebellion. Finally, Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Habakkuk, the hugger. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Habakkuk. If you get to Haggai, you've gone too far. If you get to Zephaniah, you've gone too far. All right, Habakkuk. And we quote verse 4 a lot. But there's a context here between verse 4 and verse 5. We quote verse 4 a lot because the New Testament quotes verse 4 a lot. But um, I think it's, it's interesting to see this in its larger scope because it lines up exactly with Proverbs and what we're talking about with soul satisfaction. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. There's something that's just not right about that guy. okay? Because he's not right. <laughs> he's proud. He's not righteous. But the righteous will live by faith. And so there's tons we do with this. We, um, we can view this uh, typically in terms of the types. We can view this as representative in terms of believers and unbelievers. We can view this specifically as Satan. He is the proud one. As for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. But the righteous one that's God the Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, will live by faith. We then expand upon that to 
uh, believers versus unbelievers in general. And so we are, we are righteous by faith in Christ. We become the righteousness of God by faith in Christ. And so when we say the righteous will live by faith, we have positional applications and we have experiential applications. To get saved, yes, the righteous will live by faith. So believe in Jesus Christ, receive His righteousness, there you go, right? Positional. But then reread the verse again, now apply it experientially. Now that you are a righteous one, how then shall we now live? Also by faith. The same way by which we were saved is the same way by which we walk, by faith. Furthermore, there's a verse 5 that goes with verse 4. Wine betrays the haughty man. Now there's a purpose for wine, but it can be abused. And if you're proud and your soul is not right within you, then wine will betray you. Something that's designed for blessing will be a curse. And so for the unbeliever, for the carnal believer, for any human that's not occupied with Christ and identifying the sufficiency of God's supply, uh, drinks too much because he's not content with the sufficient. Wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol. Remember, when Sheol satisfied? Never. So if you're going to enlarge your appetite to have a Sheol appetite... See, don't say you could eat a horse. Say, I have a shale appetite. If you're going to have a shale appetite, then what you're saying is you're never going to stop. It's never enough. And he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. And then it goes on. Will not all these take up a taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him? And so really what we have here in Habakkuk, going back to the typology of this that's rebuking Satan and praising Christ, is that Christ is going to have songs of praise and glory throughout the millennial kingdom and Satan is going to have the taunt songs throughout the millennium. Well, he's, you know, the thousand years that he's in the abyss. And Isaiah 14 is a taunt song. Habakkuk 2 is a taunt song. So take up a taunt song against him even mockery and insinuations against him. And we get to sing taunt songs. Or the Jewish people get to sing taunt songs. This is the Jewish scriptures. The, the part of their salvation, they sing the salvation songs of their national deliverance and they sing the taunt songs of the uh, adversary's downfall. Anyway, aspects on that. Um... I don't know that we need to go to the rest of this. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly? You have looted many nations. Um, verse 11, surely the stone will cry out from the wall, and the rafter will answer it from the framework. <laughs> you know, if you think you can massacre all the living witnesses so that no one sees what you've done, well, good luck with that, because even the stone will cry out from the wall, and the rafter will answer from the framework. The, the, the taunt song will continue even from the, the stones and the rafters. But no, uh, the earth, verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. So, millennial blessings to look forward to. Okay, well, divine viewpoint recognizes the satisfaction, human viewpoint rejects 
the sufficiency of God's grace and can therefore never be satisfied. And that wraps up chapter 13. Next week we'll come back, we'll start chapter 14 with a wise woman. And uh, she's a house builder. The wise woman builds her house, but the foolish tears it down with her own hands. Do you want to be a constructive influence in your home and in your family? Or do you want to be a destructive influence in your home and in your family? And it's, again, one or the other in a contrast, pretty, pretty stark. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for Proverbs. Thank you for the blessings upon this class. We continue to seek your will and your wisdom moving forward, Father, with uh, different scheduling choices set before us, different, uh, different things. Uh, but Father, we thank you for Wednesday morning and uh, for the ladies' prayer, for the pastoral training, for the uh, Proverbs class, for all that you do, Father. Uh, we just give you the praise and glory for your sufficient grace. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.